Think you know Disney Plus? Think again. This is not a drill. This is happening. We've got gripping action like original series The Old Man. This is not something to underestimate. Epic drama like the all-new season of Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> and iconic exclusives like the brand new season of The Kardashians. Did you know about this? Disney Plus is all this and more. <gasps> no. Yes. Thought you knew Disney Plus? Think again. All this plus more streaming this autumn. 18 plus subscription required. T's and C's apply. It is not known when three-year-old Michelle Pulsifer went missing. Her older brother remembered one night in early July 1969... Michelle came running into his room and hiding under the covers in his bed. She was scared of an unknown force. Then their mother came in, picked up the toddler and carried her away, never to be seen again. What will come next is decades of a father fighting for answers and justice for his daughter, desperate for anyone to listen to his plight. But Michelle would never be found, and he would never discover what happened to his sweet Michelle a little girl who would be forever remembered as the girl in the little blue dress. This is Michelle's story. When little Madeleine McCann disappeared from her parents' hotel room in Portugal, it quickly became international news. Complete strangers were searching for her. But when a three-year-old named Michelle Pulsifer disappeared, her father couldn't even get police to search for her. He never gave up looking. You know Madeleine's story. Well, this is Michelle's. A photograph and a question. How long does a father's love last? How powerful is a memory? What is it about that 30-year-old grainy picture of that little girl? Because she's anybody, which means she's everybody. Michelle Kelly Pulsifer was born March 17, 1966, St. Patrick's Day, in Huntington Beach, California to parents Donna Prentice and Richard Pulsifer, or Dick to his family and friends. Donna and Dick were high school sweethearts, meeting at a party when they were only kids themselves, 13 years old. Three years later, when Donna and Dick were still only 16 years old, Prentice became pregnant, and as things were in the 1950s and 1960s, if you got your girlfriend pregnant, you married her, regardless of how young you were. And that's exactly what happened here. Prentice and Dick would marry and they would get their own apartment. Prentice dropped out of high school to care for their son, Richard Jr. And while Dick did graduate from high school, he spent his night bussing tables for the local restaurant. Three years after Richard was born, the family was completed by a little girl, Michelle. The two children were inseparable. Michelle would follow her big brother wherever he went and she would mimic his every move. However, not long after Michelle's birth, Prentice and Dick drifted apart. They fell out of love. There was nothing nefarious, no third party, no allegations of domestic violence. They just didn't want to be together anymore and they split amicably. Prentice would move out of the apartment with the two children and they would move in with a family friend in Garden Grove, California. Custody laws at the time often granted the mother complete rights to the children, without any questions to the best interest of the children. So Prentice would receive full custody of Michelle and Richard, with Dick visiting the children every other weekend. 
1969, Prentice met James Michael Kent. Kent himself was a father to a little boy, Jamie, who he had full custody of. Jamie was only slightly younger than Michelle, so the three children loved running around and spending time together. The family would quickly blend their families and move into their own apartment. However, all wasn't as happy as it seemed, and it has been reported that Kent was physically abusive to little Richard Jr., who was six years old at this point, and abusive to Prentice. Kent also allegedly had a drug addiction and was an alcoholic. He had an extensive criminal record and a violent temper. His ex-wife left him because of the abuse towards her, but Prentice loved him and persisted with the relationship. It has been alleged that Kent gave his own infant son, quote, man-sized beatings with his fists, unquote. Sometime on or around July 4th, 1969, in the early morning hours, six-year-old Richard Jr. was asleep in his room when he was woken up by his three-year-old sister, Michelle. She crawled into his bed and asked him to hide her. Richard would later recall that while she seemed scared, she wasn't overly scared, if that makes sense. She wasn't terrified. Only a second later, Prentice entered the room looking for Michelle. Without saying a word, Prentice picked up Michelle and carried her out of the room. This would be the last time Richard would ever see his sister. In the days that followed, Richard noticed his mother acting strangely. And when Richard went outside to play and went into the garage where his bike was and some of his toys, he saw a cardboard box he had never seen before, and this box was covered in blankets. Richard was six, so he would have been naturally curious about this and went to investigate. This was when Prentice found Richard and she yelled at him. Prentice told Richard he was never to go in the garage again. When Richard asked what was in the box, Prentice told him it was just a motorcycle seat, nothing of interest for him. A few days after this, the family packed up and just left for Illinois. Richard would later state he remembered getting upset and refusing to leave without his little sister. But Prentice told him there just wasn't enough room in the car to take Michelle with them, and they were leaving her behind. Which, even at his young age, because there was enough room for their pet cats and dogs, why not Michelle? But all Richard would be told was he wasn't allowed to talk about Michelle anymore or ask where she was, that it wasn't any of his business. It had been a while since Dick had visited his children, so he wasn't sure what to think. He decided to contact one of Donna's friends, who told him something strange. Donna, her boyfriend and the kids, had apparently moved away without telling Dick. She said, oh, they moved. I said, what do you mean they moved? He said, well, they left the state. Had they left any forwarding address? Mm -mm. Any phone contacts, anything like that? Nothing. They just up and just like disappeared from that house. Even though Donna had full custody of the kids, Dick had never imagined that his ex-wife and her boyfriend could just take the kids and vanish without his permission. He immediately complained to local authorities. I went to the social services, told them, I said, they can't do that, it's illegal. And uh, they said, well, yes, she can. She's got full custody, she can do what she wants. Without any notification? Anything. That following weekend was Dick's scheduled visitation with the children. 
He had no idea the family moved because apparently it wasn't Dick's business where the children were either. He knocked on the door and there was no answer. And while this was unusual, Dick tried not to think too much into it. Maybe Prentice had forgotten he was coming over. But when he returned a few days later, there was still no one there. At this point, Dick could not shake the feeling that something was wrong. Not sure what else to do, Dick called some of Prentice's friends who broke the news to him that the family had moved to Illinois, but no one had a forwarding address or an exact location as to where they were now. Dick was understandably shocked and furious and worried. He felt like any other parent would in this situation. He knew in his core that he had to find his children and make sure they were safe. And where do you go in these situations? You go to the police for help. But the police refused to allow him to file a missing persons report for Richard and Michelle because Prentice had full legal custody of the children. She could go literally wherever she wanted without seeking his approval or even telling him where they were going. And because of that, in the eyes of the police, the children weren't really missing. There was nothing Dick could do but wait and hope and pray that Prentice would contact him. And since it was the 1960s, it wasn't as easy to find someone as it is today. There was no social media or cell phones or emails or internet. He was very limited with the resources available to find his children. But as mysteriously as Prentice left, she would return to California a year later. And then one day, out of nowhere, she contacted Dick to see if he wanted to spend the day with his son. Richard met up with his father and the two went for a bike ride around the city. Richard took this opportunity to tell his father exactly what happened and that he didn't know where Michelle was. Dick was again not only furious but heartbroken. Where was his little girl? He demanded that Prentice tell him where Michelle was, but she refused to tell him. Quote, It's none of your business, Richard. Unquote. Dick again tried to file a missing persons report, and while they didn't let him file this report for the same reasons he couldn't last time, they did go and speak to Prentice. She would tell police she knew exactly where Michelle was, and that Dick was just trying to cause trouble for her. So again, according to the police, there was no missing person, so no further action was taken. And just like before, Prentice and Kent packed up the boys and the animals and were gone again. This time, Dick would not have any answers for an entire decade. Usually around this time of year, I get to feeling really tired, unmotivated and just blah. Between being a mother to three, my day job and the podcast, I hold on to stress and that affects my sleep. Wrap that up all in a bow and I've become a little too reliant on coffee to get me through my day. Then, out of nowhere, Magic Mind reached out. And Magic Mind is this little green shot containing a combination of 12 active ingredients designed to stimulate focus, creativity, energy and motivation, all while decreasing stress. I was hesitant at first. I've tried so-called natural energy shots before. They taste disgusting and gave me nothing for the privilege. But then, what did I have to lose? I tried it for five days. Instead of a morning coffee, I mixed in the Magic Mind shot with a glass of sparkling water. Now, for one, they actually taste really nice. 
Not only did I not miss my morning coffee after the first day or two, I've more than halved my caffeine intake throughout the day. And because I'm not relying on the coffee jitters, my sleeps are less disrupted, so I wake up more refreshed. And then thanks to the L-theanine, I'm more productive and focused the next day. I am a complete convert, and we'll be buying these magic little green shots again. It's a total game changer. Now, I have a 20% off code to share with you guys. It's STOLEN20. To use it, you can go to magicmind.co slash stolen and enter the code STOLEN20 at checkout. The best part is they have a money-back guarantee. Better yet, if you get the subscription, it's a 40% off discount. Now, my 40% off code only lasts 10 days, so get to it. 1980, 10 years later. Dick received an order for his updated child support payments. Dick wasn't able to send child support checks previously because he never knew where to send them, but it seemed that Prentice and Kent had gotten divorced a year earlier and she needed financial support. But there was only one child listed on the application, Richard Jr. Prentice's contact details had her living in Wisconsin now, and Dick would call her and demand to know where Michelle was. And again, Prentice refused to tell him anything. Thankfully, this time Dick had the law on his side. The judge ordered a stay in the child support case until Prentice revealed the whereabouts of Michelle Pulsifer, something that Prentice would never do. And because Prentice withdrew her application for child support, that was that. Dick and Richard were the only two people that seemed to care that Michelle ever existed. And once Richard turned 18, he returned to California to live with his father. Prentice would remain in Wisconsin for the next 25 years. Dick and Richard were desperate to find Michelle and were willing to try anything to find her. Richard even went to a hypnotist to see if he could remember a clue. Maybe a distant memory that would lead them to find Michelle, but the sessions proved fruitless. But there was one memory that haunts Richard right up to this day. He would tell NBC News of an incident that occurred late one night. Quote, I think I was in my junior year. I don't recall exactly. I woke up to her crying. Her bedroom door was closed and I heard Michelle's name and the word dead. But I was not quite coherent and I was barely awake. Unquote. Richard even tried calling his mother in the mid-1980s, hoping for answers as to what really happened to Michelle. She told him what she told Dick all those years earlier, that she wasn't going to tell him. Quote, Rich, you know, things happen. We didn't have a whole lot of money, and we couldn't keep all three of you. Be grateful I chose you. Unquote. But she also claimed that Michelle was still alive and still used the surname Pulsifer. But because Prentice never filed a missing persons report for Michelle, and the police refused to allow Dick to, Michelle's disappearance would not be investigated by authorities for more than 30 years. And then in 2001, 32 years after Michelle's disappearance, Dick's relatives had a family reunion at a park in San Diego. It was there that a former sister-in-law was reminded about Michelle's disappearance and about Dick's desperate attempts to find her. She offered financial help to hire a private investigator who might finally find Michelle. When we were first hired to, to find Michelle Pulsifer, I assumed 
it would be quite easy and that this would take a matter of several weeks, if not a month at the most. 2001, 32 years after Michelle's disappearance, Dick and Richard were at a family reunion with the Pulsifer family at a park in San Diego. Dick's former sister-in-law approached him and offered to financially back a private investigation to aid in the search for Michelle. And if anyone could find Michelle, it would be Paul Chamberlain. Chamberlain had an impressive history working with the FBI for nearly 20 years. His specialty was kidnapping and extortion cases, which he had solved hundreds of. As of 2001, he was now retired, and he had formed his own investigative and security consulting firm in Los Angeles. Chamberlain actually thought this would be easy money for him, and he would figure out what happened to Michelle right away. Quote, The facts as they were given to me sounded very much like a domestic problem and that, therefore, the child was probably out there somewhere and not difficult to find, unquote. He searched for documents, school records, and interviewed dozens of people. Not only was Chamberlain unsuccessful in finding Michelle, he couldn't find anything to suggest Michelle Pulsifer even existed after 1969. There was no paper trail. No one had seen her. There was no leads whatsoever. Nothing. Nada. Chamberlain had never seen anything like it in his whole career. Chamberlain would then go to interview Donna Prentice. If anyone had the answers they needed, it would be her. In September 2003, Prentice told Chamberlain her version of events, that the family had a small car and the drive to Chicago, Illinois was a long one. Prentice wanted to be a good mother and not put her toddler through that, So she spoke to Kent and they came to a mutual agreement that the best temporary agreement was to send Michelle to live with Kent's mother, Jane Lambert. And once they settled in Illinois, they would send for Michelle. But this would never happen and years would pass. Prentice would try and explain away why Richard heard her saying Michelle was dead. Not because she was dead, but because she was dead to her that she didn't want Michelle in her life anymore. Prentice would tell Chamberlain that she believed Kent's mother took her daughter to Canada. She reasons this because there was a girl named Michelle about her daughter's age, living there with Kent's relatives. But this wasn't Michelle Pulsifer. Chamberlain discovered that Kent's sister had her own daughter named Michelle, and she had the birth certificate to prove it. But there was another issue with all of this. It didn't make sense that Kent's mother, Jane Lambert, would agree to take on an active toddler. In July 1969, when Michelle was last seen, Jane was deep in an alcohol addiction and she was dying of breast cancer. And then when Jane died in 1972, both Prentice and Kent didn't attend the funeral, even though they only lived a few hours away at the time. And Michelle would have only been six years old at the time, still a baby, Prentice never contacted any of Kent's family asking to see her daughter or to query about her whereabouts. Not even a phone call was made. Orange County investigators continued searching, and soon new information surfaced about Mike Kent. The boyfriend turned husband and now ex-husband had a criminal record, with convictions for battery and violating restraining orders. He also had a history of alcohol and drug abuse. We've concluded Michelle never left that home in Huntington Beach alive. 
By August of 2004, the Orange County District Attorney announced Mike Kent and Donna Prentice had been arrested for murder. August 2004. Because of the tireless work completed by Chamberlain and his investigative firm, Michael Kent and Donna Prentice would be charged with Michelle's murder. Authorities in Illinois arrested Kent, and then two days later, Prentice was arrested as well at her home in rural southwest Wisconsin. In custody, it didn't take long for Kent to confess to what he claimed really happened to Michelle. According to Kent, when Michelle didn't come for breakfast one morning, Prentice went into the toddler's room to fetch her. She came out minutes later as white as a ghost. Confused and wanting to see what frightened Prentice, Kent went into Michelle's bedroom, finding her in her pyjamas, curled up on her bed in the fetal position. There was no sign of blood or injury. She was cold to the touch and not moving. When he came out of the room, Prentice was waiting for him in the hallway and the couple embraced. Prentice was sobbing uncontrollably and saying that she didn't know what to do. What Kent claimed happened next, he called an unspoken agreement. No one called 911. Kent simply put Michelle's body on the floor of the back seat of his car. He drove to Williams Canyon in eastern Orange County. He dug a three-foot grave that he covered with rocks to keep the animals away, and he left. That night, Kent and Prentice started packing to leave with the boys to Chicago the next day. Kent claimed he never asked Prentice what happened to Michelle, but he thought that she killed Michelle the night before, when he left the house for several hours to return a motorcycle he had stolen. Police did take this confession seriously. In late October 2004, volunteers hiked a steep hillside in remote Williams Canyon. They would poke into nests of wood rats. A team of anthropologists scattered through brush, picking up and bagging some baked coyote dung, all in the hope they would find a small human bone or maybe even a tooth, anything that could help solve the mystery of what happened to Michelle. A senior deputy coroner spent days in the unforgiving California sun, directing a backhoe operator moving inch by inch of dirt carefully, looking for a secret burial spot. In total, 35 searchers worked nine-hour days for four days, most being volunteers or wanting to find the answers Dick and Richard waited decades for. Unfortunately, this particular canyon was regularly flooded, so unless her body was buried deeply, which it doesn't sound like she was, Kent claimed he only dug a three-foot-deep grave, that Michelle's tiny body was most likely washed away by the floodwaters or even eaten by animals. Both Prentice and Kent pleaded not guilty to the murder charges, but Kent waived his right against self-incrimination and agreed to testify against his ex-wife. But this was a race against time for investigators and the prosecution because Kent was dying. Kent was suffering from diabetes, internal bleeding, severe liver and kidney problems. And in February 2005, only weeks before he was due to give his damning testimony against Prentice, Kent would fall into a coma and die. With Kent dead, Donna Prentice was about to stand trial for murdering her daughter, despite the case's obvious challenges. You don't have any body. Right. You don't have a murder weapon. Right. Do you have a motive? Um, I couldn't comment on that. 
What he could say is his team of investigators had exhausted all leads, talked to friends, relatives, and former roommates in an effort to find Michelle, or at least to find out what had happened to her. We started this investigation thinking she was dead, but wouldn't it be great if we were wrong? And wouldn't it be great if we could reunite this now adult girl with her long-lost father? Maybe she did go to another family or ran away or grew up with somebody. How do you prove that's not the case? Um, because of all the avenues that we went to, all the hints or clues we could have had all led us to the sad conclusion, and that is she was dead and she never left that house in Huntington Beach alive. 2007, Donna Prentice would finally face trial for Michelle Pulsifer's murder. Arguments for the prosecution was that there could be only one person guilty for killing little Michelle, and that was Prentice. A little girl lost was how prosecutor Larry Yellen described Michelle to the jury in his opening statement. But they knew it was going to be an uphill battle because there was nobody, no witnesses, no evidence there was even a crime. And now with Kent deceased, it was always going to be a difficult case to prosecute. But the defence would put forward another scenario, that Kent was their killer, that Kent was a violent monster, that anything he said could not be believed, that Prentice was a loving and caring mother, and there was no way she knew Michelle had died or that Kent had buried her. That there was no reason why she would think anything other than Michelle was alive and well, that she believed that one day Michelle would find her way back to her. But she couldn't do anything because she was a battered woman. Quote, Kent went through some kind of ritual of terror, where he made her go up to the bedroom of the place they were staying, that he took a loaded firearm, that he fired several rounds at her head while she sat on the bed, to warn her that if she contacted his mother or tried to get the child back at this time, that she was going to die. Unquote. Dick was a mainstay at every hearing, and didn't matter how routine or insignificant it was. For each hearing, he would get into his car with his wife, Kathy, and together they would drive the 270 miles from their home in Las Vegas to Orange County, a trip that would have taken them four to five hours each way. Unfortunately, in the end, after four days of deliberations, the jury was deadlocked 10 to 2 in favour of conviction. But because the verdict wasn't unanimous, the judge declared a mistrial. The prosecutor, Larry Yellen, vowed to try the case again. Quote, I want to get back to this trial as soon as possible. A lot of our witnesses, when you have a case that's 35 years old, we are getting older, and we have lost a few people from the time we began the investigation until the time the trial started, including Michael Kent. Unquote. She's just this little kid. Larry Yellen, Orange County Deputy District Attorney. I've got the feeling very early on uh, in seeing this one little grainy picture that is all we had at the time of this little blonde girl. And uh, you kind of get an image of what she could have been maybe growing up, uh, what her life could have been like, the things that she was deprived. And so you are driven uh, to find out what happened. And 18 months later, the prosecution kept their promise. In late 2008, Prentice would again face trial for her daughter's murder. This time it took the jury eight days of deliberation to reach their decision. The jurors believed Prentice did suffer the abuse at the hands of Michael Kent, but that her behaviour after this just didn't make sense. But did this behaviour equate murder? 
that was something the jury was not convinced of. This time, the jurors would end up deadlocked, equally split as to whether Prentice should be acquitted of second-degree murder. After four years, three months and one day in prison, Donna Prentice was a free woman. The judge would dismiss the charges from here, saying there wasn't enough evidence to try Prentice for a third time and that the case should now be deemed closed. So the judge, quote, It's time for closure, but can closure come for this father? He's been asking himself the same question for four decades. Where has his little girl gone? Unquote. Dick told Dateline that he will never give up on Michelle, not until he discovers what happened to the little girl he last saw, his girl in the little blue dress. Quote, I have no clue what happened to Michelle, that's the question, and that's the answer I'll probably never get. I don't know what a three-year-old could possibly do to make this happen. Unquote. No leads whatsoever. Nothing. When a father has searched so long, how much does nothing weigh? Almost enough to crush him. When he said, there's no record. From from 1960, there was no record of Michelle from 1969 on. Michelle Pulsifer was three years old at the time of her disappearance. She was three foot two to three foot five and 40 to 45 pounds with blonde hair and brown eyes. If Michelle is still alive today, she would be 66 years old. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Michelle Pulsifer, please contact the Orange County Sheriff's Department on... 714-425-1900. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice, and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Deadly Cold War foes. Generals clamoring for attack. Political ambitions and fantasies. What brings a world to the brink of destruction? And more importantly, what brings it back? Max Hastings' gripping new book, Abyss, The Cuban Missile Crisis 1962, tells the amazing story of the 13 days that shook the world. Abyss by Max Hastings. Out now in all good bookshops.